The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, it is Friday. It's been a long and hard week uh, for the world. We've been bringing you the stories both internationally and domestically over the last five days. We've got a little bit more to go before this week's finished TFI Fridays. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We are going to have a very, very powerful broadcast today. We've got some great guests uh, as well. We're going to be covering some big stories over the next two hours. Live and direct, welcome everybody in the TNT chat community. Great to see you guys in there as well. Had good crowds in there. Have a good showing in the TNT chat box. That's where you want to be. The red bubble, a lower right-hand corner of your screen if you open the URL tntradio.live you'll see that red bubble just click on that log in it'll keep you logged in and you'll be with our tnt community there so that's where you want to be that's where the live action is during the program uh in the first hour we're going to be connecting with a very very special guest a former british ambassador and member of the foreign services craig murray is going to be joining us for a really important discussion on not just the international courts of justice genocide interim ruling against Israel. We'll talk about that, but also the plight uh, of Julian Assange. Uh, we'll get an update on that. And of course, Craig's uh, thoughts and insights on both of these topics are absolutely invaluable uh, to the discussion. So we are absolutely honored to have him on the program. Uh, and then in the second hour, we'll be joined uh, hopefully by Ryan Christian, from a great independent media outlet, The Last American Vagabond. Ryan's got a number of stories that he is tracking, uh, including, interesting, the ICJ ruling against Russia uh, in similar cases as we've seen with under the genocide banner. There's other things going on at the ICJ. Interesting results there at that court, uh, but also the Uyghur controversy, uh, accusations of a Uyghur genocide. We'll look at what Ryan's saying on this. Uh, he's done quite a bit of research on this. Uh, there's kind of a controversy surrounding this uh, story over the last couple of years. Certainly it's a big set piece for US foreign policy. So look forward to talking to Ryan Christian in the second hour about that. And of course, we'll be joined by our legal correspondent, Matthew Lee, in the Big Apple, uh, as he gives us the latest from inside the courtrooms at the Southern District of New York, the big federal cases, and of course, the latest on the Trump trials. Big payout, by the way, uh, last week, $83 million to E. Jean Carroll. That's a civil suit uh, finding against Donald Trump. Interesting result there. We'll talk about that and more with Matthew in the second hour looking forward to that conversation as always uh big news uh breaking news uh israel has launched attacks on damascus this is the capital of syria overnight we've seen airstrikes uh there i believe these are uh, missiles fired from israeli jets likely from uh, lebanese airspace uh, we don't have confirmation on the actual location of where they fired from Nonetheless, it looks like the ground is being prepared for uh, some sort of U.S. retaliation for the three American servicemen that were killed uh, allegedly in Jordan. We believe that they were actually killed in Syria. 
but the United States didn't want to admit that uh, for legal reasons. Uh, but the United States has promised it's going to retaliate, as we said yesterday, at a time of its place and in a manner of its choosing. That could come uh, within days, uh, in fact. In fact, it could be by the end of today. Uh, anyone's guess what shape that's going to take. But as we warned previously on this program multiple times, especially in the last couple of days, that any U.S. strikes against targets or against targets in Iraq um, or Syria are going to be met with reprisals. There are a number of U.S. bases there that, uh, quite frankly, are totally exposed. To put it, to put it frankly, the United States are sitting ducks uh, in both Syria and Iraq. Their presence is not welcome, and they have indefensible positions. This could end badly, or this also could be a prelude to a wider escalation for a multinational war in the region that might not be contained to the region. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about World War III. This is not an exaggeration. This is a massive risk uh, at the moment, especially with all that's at stake, the Babo Mendeb Straits as well, international shipping, international fuel and energy. Why is this happening? All these countries who support the Palestinians are asking for one thing, uh, an end to the genocide, an end to the genocide, an end to the blockade of Gaza and allow the Palestinian people to live and Israel needs to be restrained. This is what all of these countries, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Iran, and many other actors in the region are asking for, as well as countries all around the world. If you look at the General Assembly consensus on this, overwhelmingly the global population are uh, backing the Palestinians in this situation. And I think what we have, unfortunately, is the G7 countries, the United States, NATO members are all locked into a certain position uh, on this. So this has created a lot of a log, uh, a log jam of sorts in terms of international relations, and this needs to be resolved as soon as possible to save as many lives as possible uh, in Palestine right now. Whether that happens on a short time scale or a, long, a longer time scale is really anyone's guess at this point, but uh, a lot of people in the world are holding out hope. I want to welcome onto the program a very special guest. Uh, he is a former uh, British diplomat, ambassador for Uzbekistan. He's also a veteran of the British Foreign Service, and he's become a very important voice on a number of issues, two of which we will touch today. The ICJ ruling against Israel, the interim ruling. We're going to talk to Craig Murray about this, as well as the uh, plight of Julian Assange, who is a political prisoner uh, in a UK maximum security prison at the moment in Belmar southeast london what is happening with both of these stories let's get the insights and thoughts from our next guest craig murray craig welcome to the program thank you patrick good to see you it's great to see you as well craig uh and we've been following your writing uh, up at your website your blog and i realize uh, you've also been uh, hanging out in the gallery of a certain courtroom uh in the hague uh, giving everybody uh, a first-hand account of what's been happening, and your work has been absolutely invaluable in that respect. Let's start, Craig, with the ICJ ruling. Uh, just explain to us um, where this is at at the moment. What is the significance of what's happened uh, over the last couple of weeks? And going forward, uh, can we hope that this might be a positive step forward that might lead to other actions uh, to restrain Israel with the situation right now in Gaza, Craig? 
Yeah, I think um, start with there is a huge gap between what the ICJ ruling actually says and what the political establishment and the mainstream media are claiming that it that it says. In fact, I was absolutely shocked um, a couple of days ago at the UN Security Council meeting when the United States ambassador to the United Nations says that the ICJ ruling reaffirms Israel's right of self-defense um, because it very definitely does not do that. In fact, it very pointedly does not do that. It notes that Israel said it, but then takes no account of it whatsoever uh, in its determination. And um, the ICJ ruled that Israel must follow uh, the uh, Genocide Convention and must follow uh, particular paragraphs of the Genocide Convention, articles of it. And they, that specified that, the, that Israel must stop the killing of Palestinians and must allow uh, the means of life and sustenance into uh, the Gaza Strip in a, uh, a free and unhindered manner. Um, none of which Israel is doing. There's no doubt Israel's not abiding by the, the, the ICJ ruling. But the ICJ ruling is very important because um, it, it found that there is a plausible case of genocide um, against Israel. Um, and in doing that, the ICJ produced its own facts, if you like. The, the ICJ stated, not as something that South Africa said, but the ICJ stated as a matter of fact that there are 25,000 dead, overwhelmingly civilians, that there are over 50,000 injured and maimed, that there are 350,000 buildings destroyed. Can you imagine 350,000 buildings either destroyed or seriously damaged? The scale of that is just astonishing. Um, and the ICJ found these things to be fact. That, that's why they found there to be a plausible case of genocide. They didn't find them to be assertions by South Africa. Um, and in finding them to be fact, the ICJ quoted as their sources various United Nations senior officials, um, including, of course, UNRWA. They, they, uh, a, a lot of their judgment and a lot of their fact was founded on evidence by UNRWA, and that in part explains the immediate attack to try to undermine the credibility of, of UNRWA. And one, one further thought, um, the ICJ ruling is having consequences. And I think, for example, this um, letter by 800 officials across various Western states, including the European Union and the United States, that's been released today, um, uh, saying that the politicians, the political leadership, uh, is just wrong in its support of Israel and, and is ignoring crimes against humanity. I don't think that letter would have been, ever been uh, formulated and, and released were it not for the ICJ ruling, for example. It, it, it gives an extremely powerful tool to those who are trying to stop this. And so, it, it, yes, of course, it hasn't stopped things overnight, but I think we will see it working through. Do you think it's a, it's a case, like uh, what you're saying there, Craig, is, is given a lot of people who 
would like to speak out, who would like to take some action, countries or institutions, but maybe didn't feel as confident to do it before because they didn't want to be seen to be acting alone. It sort of helps to build uh, a kind of more of an international consensus on this in, in this sort of time of emergency, uh, really. That makes it very different from past UN resolutions, uh, which many have been passed against Israel, but uh, none has taken really any effect in terms of direct action. But now we countries are considering sanctions all sorts of things are, are possible going forward uh, do, you, do you see other major powers possibly shifting their 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 policy with Israel because everyone jumped behind Israel on October 7th a lot of the European countries of course EU uh, do you see some break some breakages some fissures in that uh, coalition I mean there there are um splits already in Europe, for example, you have Spain uh, saying it is going to double its contribution to UNRWA and speaking out against the suspension um, of funds to, to UNRWA. You have um, Ireland and Norway, various other countries taking quite a strong um, pro-Palestinian uh, view. Uh, Switzerland was very strong uh, at the security Council on, on on the Palestinian side, so you you no longer have a um, a united Western Front. You have the Foreign Minister of Norway warning countries that they may be guilty of complicity in genocide if they continue to ship weapons to to Israel, and that's the Prime Minister of Norway, sorry, the Foreign Minister of Norway. So um, that there are fissures opening up. There's no doubt about that, but. Throughout this, um, there's been a huge gap between the, the popular feeling and the views of the political class. The political class, as you say, had no hesitation whatsoever in giving 100% backing to Israel. Um, and that's, you know, it's partly for reasons of ideology, but it's mainly because they're bought and the leadership of all the main uh, political parties has been funded by in, in, in almost all major Western countries, has been heavily funded by the Zionist lobby for exactly this kind of emergency for years and for years and years. And all that money is is talking. And really the gulf between the people, popular opinion has shifted enormously. Popular opinion, even in the United States, where I didn't think it would ever be possible to really change uh, popular opinion on Israel because there have been decades and decades of propaganda, of, of extreme propaganda. Um, I, even in the United States, popular opinion has shifted. And, and that's it, it was the case some time ago that it was shifting and was very stark among certain demographic groups who are extremely important to uh, Biden's chances of re-election. But it's now shifting in a much wider way in society and among Republicans as well as among Democrats, because people aren't stupid. You, you know, what, what people are seeing unfold is plainly a genocide, plainly disproportionate and plainly vicious. Um, uh, so it's really a question of whether the Western so-called democracies any longer have any kind of mechanisms that feed through from the views of the population and, and can control what politicians 
do? Uh, 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 and that's really the important question, which we will see the answer to in the next few months. I think you just made it a, a, a very important point there, Craig. You're talking about all of these things that the Israeli lobby have done over the years to kind of get control of the narrative, to control uh, political parties or candidates. What they did to the Labour Party more or less gutted it. Uh, single-handedly gutted it of any opposition uh, against Israeli policies under the guise of uh, flushing out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Uh, and now, as far as the UK goes, it's the same as in the United States, Craig. There is a uniparty when it comes to this issue. There's literally hardly any opposition. I think even Kate Ossimore, uh, who was a shadow minister on the Labour side, definitely a person of good standing in the party, uh, has uh, been suspended, I guess, over comments regarding genocide in Gaza. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. How can you have a functioning commons, House of Commons, uh, if there is no actual opposition on an issue like this? It's uh, it's kind of extraordinary if you th if you think about it historically, Craig. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the current state of uh, the Conservative and the Labour Party on on this issue? Yeah, I mean. I think um, one incident, in a way, sums it all up. Um, you may recall when um, ITN, an extremely respected British mainstream news organization, uh, it was ITN who had the footage of the Palestinian civilian, hold, unarmed civilian, holding a white flag, um, who was shot dead right in front of the cameras just after concluding an, an interview. and. Um, the leaders of both major parties, both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, were asked if that was a war crime. And both refused to say that it is a war crime uh, for uh, to shoot dead an unarmed civilian under a white flag, which is not a difficult question. You know, very <laughs> and that you know, there's these people are bought and paid for to the extent there is no shame or humiliation. That they are not prepared to undergo to support um, Israel. We saw the um, uh, White House spokesman uh, refusing to say that it was a crime to shoot hospital patients, com comatose hospital patients, in the head in their beds while you're disguised as a doctor. You know, and and again, there just is no doubt whatsoever. You know, it's like saying, is it a crime to to rape a woman and strangle her and stab her to death? Well, yes, it's a crime. You, you, you know, saying it is a crime uh, is, is the start. It doesn't impute agency or doesn't say who did it. But to deny it is a crime at all is utterly ludicrous. And that's the position the political leadership have got themselves into. And on the other hand, you have, um, and, you know, you have Donald Trump. Uh, who appears to be likely to be the uh, the opposition uh, candidate for American president, uh, to use the UK terminology for it. Um, equally, I, I saw making speech yesterday, giving full backing to, to Israel. So who do you vote for? And you can vote for Cornel West or, or, or Jill Stein, who are both wonderful human beings. Um, and I would urge everyone to do that. But they, uh, it, it's not actually going to uh, affect the result of the elections. No, this is uh, this is a huge problem right now. And Craig, there's also a 
problem of confidence and credibility. Uh, and we see, and you've probably witnessed to this, I'm sure you've had firsthand experience, the state constantly saying that uh, any negative reporting about its foreign policy is either Russian disinformation or is undermining confidence in our democracy uh, and so forth. And here we have a perfect example, as you just outlined, Craig, uh, where government is defending an indefensible policy. I can't think of a better thing that would undermine the confidence uh, in institutions or the way the mainstream press has been reporting on this. Uh, take the BBC or CNN, for example, the situation in Gaza. So this this gulf is, is increasing and we're seeing a, a detachment, if you will, which you alluded to earlier, Craig. Um, I think there's a big crisis here. How do you think uh, the state will react to this increasing gap? Um, and how will the public react uh, to it? Because certainly it means that uh, maybe more independent candidates need to be uh, mobilized to run for office. Or to, how, how would you sort of outline this problem and what are some possible uh, solutions? Yeah, I, I think um, one the uh, one, um, amusing um aspect was what one you know uh senior member of the political class let me put it that way nancy pelosi was um uh, filmed the last couple of days firstly saying that all pro-palestinian demonstrators are are paid by russia and then the next day saying that they're all paid by china um and uh you know obviously neither neither being true but i i think that in a way is uh, a symptom of the fact that the political class just can't understand they are being challenged. You know, they they can't get it into their heads. But ordinary people don't buy their bullshit anymore. They, they, they just don't. There are vast swathes of people out there who just aren't prepared to accept that, that black is white. Um, uh, and it is a challenge to the political class. Also, I think... They are a bit shocked because they were, they were, as I say, uh, bought and paid for. They all won automatically into action on the 8th of October, coming in entirely behind Netanyahu, giving everything he wanted, sending money, sending weapons, sending everything. Um, I don't think at that stage, to be fair, I don't think they expected a massive genocide to, to unfold in which they are complicit. It then has unfolded. They've discovered that they have no means of, of controlling what they created and that Netanyahu laughs at their uh, at their admonitions. Um, they are and they are trapped. They're, they're trapped behind a policy they committed to. They are already guilty of complicity in genocide, so they can't back down from pretending it's not happening. Because you know, if they admit it's genocide, then they are complicit. And they also have to go to jail. So they're going to have to pretend it's not happening and continue pretending it's not happening. And plus which, there is no earthly argument, there is no possible argument that what is happening in any way is a benefit to the United States or the United Kingdom or any other Western country. There's no way that the genocide in Gaza helps anybody. It's... Uh, increased inflation, put up fuel prices, uh, reduced confidence in international markets. It's all downside, unless you're, you know, you, you're interested in the arms industry or in the security and military industries. Um, for everybody else, 
it's it's a downer and it can carries huge risks of wider war which will be an even bigger economic downer so so they're stuck they are committed to this policy which has gone horribly wrong they don't have an end game they don't have any way out of it um and i don't think they're behaving rationally i don't think they know what to do um i don't think biden knows where he is let alone what to do but the <laughs> the people around him um are, are just admired in, in in this dreadful situation so it's very hard to know how it will play out their, their natural reaction is to react by being more vicious and that's why they piled in uh to their reaction to up to the icj rulings the cut funds to UNRWA to try to speed up the genocide before it can be stopped because that's what this starvation policy amounts to um so, so i fear they will default to uh, more killing in gaza more death in gaza and more repression of opposition at home more, more banning of protest more i think that's their default setting but but it's not going to get them anywhere and when we come back, I want to take a break with the station I'm with Craig Murray, former British ambassador and diplomat. Uh, Craig, when we come back, I want to discuss the implications of being complicit or aiding and abetting uh, Israel, the countries that have been arming it. What are the legal implications going forward after the interim ICJ ruling? Also, there are peace talks that are being tabled right now uh, in Qatar. Uh, what are the prospects of that? And then we're going to touch on the issue of Julian Assange, uh, which is now coming to a head all of this and more on the other side i'm patrick henningson your host you are listening and watching tnt today's news talk we'll be right back tnt's misty winston she says how is anyone still talking about october 7th what israel has done since october 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric the only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast. I'm very pleased to be welcoming onto the program a former British ambassador. He is also a, a noted journalist now covering some of the most important topics of the day. Craig Murray joining us on the line right now. Craig, before the break, you were talking about the ICJ ruling and countries that are complicit uh, in this genocide. And I think it's safe to say we can call it a genocide number 
of experts have weighed in on this. It's kind of beyond debate at this point. But those countries who are aiding and abetting Israel, either by providing weapons or support in other areas, material support, what are the legal implications for these countries going forward? Because as you said, Craig, Israel didn't stop after the interim uh, judgment uh, coming out of The Hague, and neither did the supplies to Israel coming from a number of countries leading that list is the United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, and other NATO members. What about them going forward, Craig? Uh, what could they what could they be facing uh, down the road? They could certainly be facing um, a prosecution themselves at the International Court of Justice as states. Um, and I think after, the problem is, you know, we are two years away from a final ruling by the ICJ, which I'm very confident will be a ruling that there has been a genocide. Uh, that will have to be followed up by um, by action for complicity in genocide against other states. And, and indeed, those actions may be initiated sooner. Several states have indicated they may be going to take action against the United States in particular for complicity in genocide. Um, and... Uh, the, uh, among the things that the ICJ can order are reparations. They, they they can order you know huge sums of money to be paid to Palestine, for example, for uh, for complicity in genocide by states. But more importantly than that, the Genocide Convention uh, makes very plain uh, that action has to be taken against individuals uh, who were complicit in genocide. Uh, who committed genocide, who incited to genocide. It, 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 the Genocide Convention makes absolutely plain that it's not limited to action against states. And once it finds genocide, the International Criminal Court is going to have no choice but to issue warrants because the ICJ, the senior court, will have found that. Um, and this is important because the International Criminal Court is generally speaking, is a farce. It, it, it's a tool of Western diplomacy. It's a mechanism by which NATO powers lock up black men they don't like. That's bluntly what the International Criminal Court is. It's extremely corrupt. Its chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, is a, is a disgrace. Um, so normally, the International Criminal Court wouldn't think, you know, it's issued a, a warrant against Putin for Ukraine, but it hasn't issued a warrant against Netanyahu, and it hasn't issued a warrant against Joe Biden. Um, once the ICJ finds there is a genocide, the International Criminal Court will have no choice but to issue a warrant against Netanyahu and many of his ministers, certainly all those who the ICJ has already quoted as inciting to genocide. The ICJ See, we'll have to prosecute them all, and I think they will end up having to prosecute Biden and Sunak and others. Um, so that's the international field. Um, they may feel they can escape that, but you know, simply by staying out of the clutches of the of the uh, International Criminal Court. The United States, for example, doesn't allow its nationals to be uh, prosecuted, and has has even. Um, threatened violence against the International Criminal Court in the past, should it prosecute any of its nationals. Um, but but the, the crime of genocide is also a crime in domestic law in, in many countries. 
um, in the United Kingdom, it is specifically the uh, the International Criminal Court Act of 2001 incorporates the Genocide Convention uh, specifically, not just as something the International Criminal Court can try, but as an offence in UK domestic law. So if there is a finding of genocide eventually by the International Court of Justice, I don't see how the United Kingdom can fail to bring uh, legal proceedings here, the complicity in genocide against Sunak and his senior ministers, and against officials who were involved in uh, the transactions of weapons to Israel, for example. So, And many other states will have similar legislation. I know in the United States, there was a ruling yesterday, in fact, by a federal court, but the courts could not interfere because foreign policy is the sole policy of executive, um, but um, the sole prerogative of the executive, but that, that also can be appealed. So uh, once politicians stand in personal danger, there's a real chance we may see some changes of of line, and, and I'm, I'm hoping to see that as the ramifications start to become plain to them. And just to be clear, Craig, there's no statute of limitations on any of this. This could uh, carry on in perpetuity. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Um, that that uh, the crime of genocide doesn't have, and there may be uh, specific uh, jurisdictions in which there there is uh, a limitation on it, but um, I doubt it. And certainly, of course, we've seen Nazi concentration guards jailed 70 years later literally so uh this is a similar thing and just more broadly craig what does this mean uh for israel uh it, for its international reputation uh within the community of nations the brand of israel has a specific brand they have a certain national story that really surrounds any conversation uh and really kind of has, has protected them uh for many decades uh when it comes to people uh criticizing it or trying to censure it or restrain it um what is the israel brand going forward uh looking like now uh will they ever be able to recover um, their whatever reputation they had previously. Um, what what what's your sort of thoughts on on this? Well, I mean, this has been a disaster for Israel in PR terms, and certainly, you know, there's no doubt that they have lost the the propaganda war in which they invested so so heavily, um, and they have indeed, particularly among younger people, they have squandered. Um, a huge amount of the, um, you know, the, the understandable and deserved sympathy which uh, Jewish people uh, received as a result of the Holocaust. You know, uh, the founding of the State of Israel was itself a crime, uh, it, it, albeit a crime sanctioned by the United Nations, but it was founded on the ethnic cleansing of Arabs to make way. Uh, and that only became possible because of the terrible event of the Holocaust, you know, where, where so many millions of Jews were exterminated. So they were given leeway to ethnically cleanse a home for themselves. Uh, and even they were excused, you know, terrible crimes that went along with that, including crimes like sinking the USS Liberty. Uh, you know, they, they were given a free pass for long. Um, 
and I think that I think that has disappeared now. I, I, I think they have managed to to lose that that sympathy, which is extraordinary when you think about it, given how deserved that sympathy was, if you if if you like. And also, there's something more intangible than that. They they made Israel appear to be. Their propaganda always was that Israel is an outpost of Western liberal culture mm. in a sea of alien culture in the Middle East, uh, a culture which was liberal and inclusive and, and left-wing, kind of a bit socialist kibbutzi. Um, uh, and I think that's disappeared forever because they, um, you know, the people who have been dominating our television screens have plainly nothing whatsoever to do with Western liberal culture. They come over as genocidal, racist thugs, um, uh, a great many of them from uh, areas of the former Soviet Union. Um, so I, I think that that attempt to link Israel to, to the Western liberal tradition has been severed forever. And it's also in, in the United States, the, the line is for Israel, the defense is that uh, they're upholding our Western uh, democratic values uh, in a very hostile Arab Middle East. And uh, without Israel there, um, you know, we could have uh, those Arabs coming over here to uh, fight us or carry out terrorist attacks and so forth. That That's more or less the boiled down rhetoric you get uh, in the U.S. Uh, Congress and Senate on this. Um, so <laughs> Western values uh, and Western history shows uh, Europe has been has a very violent past. Of course, it seems to have been exported uh, in this case to the Middle East. Sadly, uh, Craig, um, have you uh, any thoughts on the recent ceasefire negotiations which are happening uh, in Qatar? Uh, do you think uh, we are close to some sort of an agreement here? Um, and if so, is it something that could hold uh, your thoughts on this, Craig? As I as I said earlier, I think um, you know the West has managed to paint itself into a complete dead end with a policy which has no possible good outcomes and is going nowhere. Um, so they will be putting huge pressure on um, the Israelis to declare victory and leave and stop. Um, and the outlines of the uh, supposed uh, uh, ceasefire agreement on the table are a very long pause of 30 to 45 days, which may turn into a permanent uh, pause in the fighting. Uh, a release of all hostages in exchange for a massive release of Palestinian uh, prisoners, release of thousands of Palestinian um, prisoners. Um, and this is uh, you know, an effort by, by Israel to um, to to claw back somehow uh, some pretense of of victory, um, but it's very difficult to say where that goes. Uh, Israel cannot be trusted to um, stick by any provisions on aid going into Gaza. Um, Israel appears to be insisting still on a situation where um, Hamas is removed from all government positions in. Uh, in Gaza, uh, in a situation where they have managed to massively increase support for Hamas in in in, in Gaza, so you, you you are insisting on 
people that the population do not support being put in power, plus of which, of course, is uh, at this stage all the seasoned administrators of things like the schools and, 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 and the health system and, and the infrastructure. These are all Hamas members because Hamas, of course, is is a government, uh, e e even if the, it's designated as a, a terrorist um, organization. So the um, uh, it, it, it seems to me that they're in a sense, the offer is more generous than might be expected from the Israeli side. And they're offering a much longer ceasefire than anyone expected, and they're offering many more prisoners released than anyone expected because they're desperate to get out of it. But where it leaves them um, in terms of their ultimate aims um, is, is very difficult to understand, and, and we don't really know what else they are insisting on within the ceasefire negotiations. We're getting a very partial briefing from United States-controlled Qatari authorities. Um, and a lot of this is propaganda to make it look like it's Hamas who are continuing the war. That, that, that's my, my view of it. It's also the case of resuming aid deliveries uh, into Gaza, Craig, because the United Nations wants to get in there. They want to send investigators in to take witness uh, uh, statements. A number of their workers have been killed over the last uh, three plus months, uh, UN workers. Uh, so resuming aid and bringing more, say, Western people will flood into Gaza. That would make it very difficult for Israel to resume the types of air bombardments which it has been doing over the last couple of months, wouldn't it? I mean, this is seems like there's a motivation for Israel not to make this work. Uh, if you just if you're just going by their past actions, uh, do you have any any thoughts on on that side of things, Craig? I think that's um, I think that's undoubtedly true. You, you know, Israel's um, stance is uh, schizophrenic, but but they. Um, uh, for example, on the ICJ, on the one hand, they claimed and, and had the Western media put out that they won, in some sense, the, the verdict at the ICJ. On the other hand, they denounced the ICJ as being anti-Semitic, uh, as the United Nations is anti-Semitic, the World Health Organization is anti-Semitic, Oxfam is anti-Semitic, Save the Children is anti-Semitic. You know, um, uh, and I think here, again, they're, they're, they're playing... You know, a double game, um, and I, I am skeptical of the ceasefire negotiations. I, I, I think that this is really material for their report to the International Court of Justice on how hard they were trying to implement the ruling and how it was those nasty Hamas people who blocked it and wouldn't uh, wouldn't help them. Um, I, that, that's my feeling. I, I, I think this is more propaganda than real. Yeah, we'll wait and see how this uh, shakes out over the weekend, Craig. It'll be very interesting indeed. And uh, I want to also go to the very, very important and actually very uh, dire situation, which is uh, happening right now in Southeast London. Julian Assange, a decorated journalist, founder of WikiLeaks, uh, undeniably uh, one of the most iconic figures uh, of recent decades. He has uh, lang been languishing in a Category A prison uh, unconvicted, uh, wait, awaiting extradition. If you just, uh, if you could, Craig, uh, give us uh, an update of where Julian Assange's case is right now. I know there's some important dates coming up uh, in February that people should know about. And then going forward, uh, your thoughts on the prospects of uh, resolving this situation, if there is any. Yeah. 
No, I mean, Julian's um, incarceration and his continuing to be kept in extremely harsh conditions in a prison designed for terrorists. And this is a man who's never committed an act of violence in his in his life, who's a journalist, for goodness sake. You know, why is he being held as a terrorist? This is absolutely crazy. Um, you know, this continues to be a terrible stain on uh, the United States and the United Kingdom, and to put into perspective their claims of belief in in human rights, uh, you know, which plainly are are nonsense, and 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 it undermines their their criticisms of other people for uh, of other countries for for breaches of of human rights, um, and and this is very important because the you know charging a journalist for espionage for publishing leaked material that reveals war crimes. You know, when you think about it as fundamentally as that, um, this is a dreadful attack on freedom of speech and an attack in the United States on the, the very fundamental basis of the First Amendment. <laughs> this is precisely the kind of thing that the First Amendment was instituted for, to be able uh, to criticize a, um, a an overmighty government for abuses in the military sphere. That, that's what the First Amendment was for. So um, the First Amendment is dead if this if this continues. Um, we're now at the stage where Julian is having his, really his last appeal in the UK against extradition to the United States. Um, this is an appeal to the High Court. Um, and if you like, it's an appeal to have the right to appeal. Uh, it, it's an appeal which will last two days on the 20th and 21st of February, uh, and which will go through the, the major grounds for his um, uh, not being extradited. So this isn't um, looking at the health grounds. Uh, this is looking at freedom of speech. This is looking at the right to a fair trial. Uh, this is looking at the fact that He's being extradited um, uh, on espionage charges and on an indictment in which the, the main witness uh, is an Icelandic man who has been jailed for paedophilia uh, and for fraud and who admitted, has admitted that he made up his evidence in exchange for $10,000 from the FBI. Um, you know, there's the fact that Julian Assange's legal conversations with his legal defense team was spied on in the embassy and that material was given to the FBI and CIA. There's the fact that all his legal documents were handed over to the CIA after being stolen from the Ecuadorian embassy when he was uh, removed. Now, there are so many things wrong with this extradition case. It, it really is a disaster. But at, at the end of the day, it's about the state's desire to crucify somebody uh, who told facts about the wrongdoing of states. And we should never forget that the many, many crimes revealed by, by WikiLeaks in, in the leaked material, nobody was ever tried for any of those crimes. The, the only people who've been tried are the people who revealed the crimes. And that says a huge amount about the kind of way Western states are going. Uh, and, and the the total lack of freedom. So this is very, very important. There, there are a whole series of events on the 20th and 21st of February. On the 20th, early in the morning in London outside the court, there's a, a rally which we want absolutely everyone to go to. I believe there'll be local events around the world on those days because this is 
the last chance in a sense uh if um if this hearing turns down his right to a further appeal uh, he could be extradited almost immediately you know things could happen very quickly he might be extradited before there's a chance to appeal to the european court of justice um so uh we need public pressure now this is the key the key point day x they are calling it this is day x is coming yeah, Craig, I, I remember the, uh, the 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 trial or the hearings uh, at uh, Belmarsh Prison at the uh, the Woolwich uh, Court that they have uh, attached to that prison. You were there uh, in the gallery, and I remember his uh, legal team, uh, spearheaded by uh, Ed Fitzgerald and uh, Mark Summers. They they had a dazzling defense and totally dismantled the U.S. prosecution team's arguments on this. I mean, it was a rout. It was like a five nil football match. Uh, if if you could make such a metaphor. And we hear during that time, Serco uh, or his uh, prison uh, guards or whatever, roughing him up, taking his documents away from him. I mean, total suspension of his rights. Such a high profile case. And all this stuff is happening so brazenly and, and in the open. It is so obvious. Um, how could anybody of, of a lesser statue of, uh, expect uh, to be treated any better? Uh, that's the question. You know, what what rights have been suspended for him will be suspended uh, for everyone. And, and and Craig, do you think if he is extradited uh, to to the United States, your final thoughts on this before you break? I'm give you the floor, Craig, for the final uh, six minutes of this segment. But if he is extradited to the United States, this this case like uh, like this case hasn't fully been tested. The Espionage Act in a way that it would be if Julian Assange is brought to uh, a national security court on this. What do you think his chances are there? Because this would really test the United States Constitution, uh, such a case like this, Craig. Your your final thoughts on, on that? Yeah. No, I, I agree. This is going to be uh, absolutely a make-or-break case for freedom of expression in the United States if it, if it does go ahead um going back to those those days in, in belmarsh and the trial there at woolwich crown court and and subsequently at the old bailey uh, it, as you say it, you know the behavior of the state was extraordinary julian was woken up at 3 a.m to be taken to the court he's not a well man he was kept in a in something akin to a filing cabinet in which he couldn't sit um for, for uh being taken to the court uh, he wasn't allowed freely to access his legal team. In the court, he had no access to his legal team. He, he was behind glass, bulletproof glass panels and had no access to his legal team. And in the breaks, um, he wasn't allowed to... He, he could only consult um, with his legal team through a slit which he had to get down on his hands and knees to, to speak to them through the, through the slit. And every day, his legal papers were taken away from him. He wasn't allowed to take them back to his cell. He wasn't allowed to receive or send documents to his to his lawyers. And uh, you, you may also remember NGOs like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International were not allowed into the court. And not only that, they were not allowed to get the video feed of of court proceedings, and there were a tiny number, a dozen or so seats in the public gallery. So the whole thing was was completely held in, in secrecy and, and, and withdrawn from view. Um, should he be extradited? I mean, the, the problem is that the 
United States government apparently can choose to hold these trials wherever it wishes, um, and uh, it it would hold it in the uh, Eastern District of uh, Virginia, uh, where it holds all its major security trials. Um, and um, I I visited there. I went to the courthouse in which it would be held uh, a few months ago, and it's you know just down the road from CIA and the NSA. It's within sight of the uh, Arlington National Cemetery and, the, and the, the Masonic Monument to George Washington, um, and, and in a place where you know, the, the majority of the jurors either work in the security services are, or work in uh, businesses largely dependent on, on business from the security services, So, which is why the United States holds uh, these kinds of trials there, because basically you've got a rigged jury uh, ready and ready, ready to go. Um, and the other thing is, of course, he would be held for probably two years on remand pending the trial in, in terrible conditions. Um, he's already been held in terrible conditions for more than five years. Um, and there's genuine doubt from his uh, doctors as to whether he would survive long enough to uh, to actually stand trial. Um, I think the the arguments that would be made in court are are extremely important. But uh, whether he would get a fair trial in that courtroom, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and it's also worth um, dating that I went myself to the courtroom uh, to scout it out last time I was in the United States. And I, I went to try and go in and see where the public gallery is, where Julian would be, where it would be possible for his wife to be to, to, to uh, see him and, and um, observe the trial, and, and just to get that kind of basic information, to get a look at the building. Um, and they wouldn't let me in. Um, and I said, well, what, what, what do you mean you won't let me in? It's a public building. There, there is, you have trials in progress. There is, by law, public access to the courtroom. And they replied, no, but you're not the public ambassador, my. And uh, the interesting thing is, although I hadn't, although I had told them my name, I had not used the title ambassador. They plainly knew who I was, and I believe they knew I was coming, uh, which gives you some indication of the extent of the secure of the surveillance state's interest. Uh, in this case, I never was allowed into the in, in, into the courtroom. That's extraordinary, and uh, this will be uh, an interesting point in history if it gets that far. Let's hope that that extradition doesn't happen, and that this case is brought to an end. This folly has been brought to an end uh, in the next couple of weeks. Craig, uh, certainly, a lot of people are uh, going to be batting for Julian Assange. And we'll probably see very big crowds out in support of him. And uh, we, uh, again, really appreciate uh, your commitment uh, to this and many other important stories. CraigMurray.org, uh, Craig's website, his blog site, is an invaluable resource right now uh, on all of these uh, topics which we're covering. Craig, really appreciate you joining us at TNT, today's news talk this week. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me. 
There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Follow Craig. We'll drop his website in the TNT chat. We have 200 people in the chat room right now, over 200. Uh, you do want to click on those links, share them on social media. Follow Craig on X, Twitter, and other platforms where you see him. And listen, we're going to have a top-of-the-hour news headline break coming up. And when we come back... The controversy continues. We'll touch base with Ryan Christian from Last American Vagabond to talk about some important stories, some legal stories as well involving the United States, Russia, and the Uyghurs in Western China. All this and more, as well as Matthew Russell Lee, our legal correspondent, coming up in just a few minutes. Stay with us for hour number two.